1: Good morning and welcome to Asia-Pacific Currents this Saturday, the 10th of August. This is Community Radio 3CR. I'm Giselle Hannah, And I'm
0: Pierre Morrow and you're listening to Asia-Pacific
1: Currents. I did say that, Pierre, but well, thank you for saying it again. You
0: know, brought to you by Australia-Asia Worker Links.
1: And what are those details, Pierre? <laughs>
0: Well, you know I'm better than me, but I, I, do, I know. Do, I but do I do feel
1: like testing you this morning. Yes, I do remember the
0: phone number. Go it's on, zero three nine double six three seven two double seven. There
1: you go, listeners. You, go. you can ring us if you have a telephone and you believe in that method of communication. <laughs> Nobody does anymore, Pierre, except perhaps people in your generation. But for those in my generation, if you want to find us on the web or the w's.aawl.org.au, we're on Facebook and Twitter, so find us on those social media platforms. We do post news and information and campaigns and struggles from the Asia-Pacific region.
0: That's right, that's right, and lots are happening. So um, on this... uh Program here on uh, on your favourite community radio station, 3CR Radio. And before I go, actually, I have to say thanks to Solidarity Breakfast for a very nice uh, program. And, of course, that music break was uh, a bit of a legend, really, isn't he? Uh, Billy Bragg.
1: He's coming. Uh, he's touring next year.
0: He's toured many times, <laughs> Yeah, I,
1: I understand, but this yeah. is an opportunity to That's actually right. see him live again. Yes.
0: Now, uh, he was singing Waiting for the Great Leap Forward. Now, I'm happy to wait for it, but I'm not too sure where we would leap to. But anyway, that was the great leap forward. And of course
1: on today's programme
0: we have a very special guest, don't we, in the second half of the programme. She's
1: quite special, thank you.
0: That's right. Highly, 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 highly um talented, but so it will be a surprise guest. Should we leave it as a surprise guest? No, after? we
1: shouldn't. In, listener, in the second part of the show, I'm going to provide a report back on what happened in Malaysia, so we will conduct that as a conversation slash interview. Pierre is going to ask me a bunch of questions that a will allow proper, me to... Proper interview,
0: <laughs> otherwise That'll... I won't get two words in.
1: We Australia, Asia Worker Links does believe in accountability, does believe in reporting on our overseas trips. They're not junkets, they're always packed full of work and um, building campaigns and and in some cases some challenges and some difficulties. But, uh, yes, that will be the second part of the show. That's right. But we'll
0: go straight to the Min News where we go to India where a new study has found that beneath the the shimmer of one of the world's largest automotive industries and one of the newest is a sordid tale of crushed bones, lost limbs, poverty and exploitation. The research was carried out by the Safe in India Foundation in the Big Gurgon Manasa Industrial Belt of northern India, just outside of New Delhi. They found that there were um, almost 1,400 cases of serious injuries to workers over a period of four years, which amounts to two per day, and that was the ones uh, officially reported. Almost 90% of the workers who suffered these injuries were migrants, about 70% were in some kind of short-term work contract, i.e. precarious work, while two-thirds were below 30 years of age. The report also found that uh, in this um, sector in this car industry sector, it, there is a big supply change of um, supply chain of Tier one, two, three, and four companies, and the lower you go in this chain, accidents become more frequent. Unionization rates, not surprisingly, are also very low. The foundation is now interested to start researching the other big automotive clusters in uh, in the Pune, Gujarat, and Chennai regions of. India. I mean, Giselle, the fact that they were, uh, most were migrants and on precarious contracts um, and low unionisation. Uh, It's almost like a formula, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I'm also a little bit – tired is the wrong word – frustrated that all we do as a movement, really, is just talk about how bad things are for people in precarious work. Where is the strategy to deal with this seemingly very, very effective strategy from the capitalists to keep us divided, to keep us precarious, to prevent us from fighting back?
0: I think that's a very good point. Um, I think there's a lot of strategies, but um, are there winning strategies?
1: Yes. (laughs) I don't think there are a lot of strategies, Pierre. I I think we whinge and whine about it and then we go back to only organising organised workers, which is like whipping already whipped cream. (laughs) I like that analogy. (laughs) Yes. Uh, We're going to move to Hong Kong now where workers increasingly are joining these protests. The massive protests that first started two months ago against a proposed extradition bill that would allow suspects in Hong Kong to be legally extradited to mainland China are not only continuing but are increasingly widening their political demands. In the last few weeks, in the last week rather, We saw sections of workers mobilizing and entering the movement in large numbers. On Friday, the 2nd of August, around 20,000 public servants demonstrated against the government. Then, on Monday, the 5th of August, a general strike called by protest organisers and supported by the Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions drew tens of thousands to the streets. It saw the cancellation of hundreds of flights, trains and ferries as well as reports of many thousand other workers reporting in sick on that Monday. The International Trade Union Confederation has also expressed its support for the actions of Hong Kong workers and the demands of the protest movement that are now the permanent withdrawal of the extradition law, the release of the arrested protesters without charge, withdrawal by the authorities of their characterization of the 12 June protests as riots, an independent investigation into police violence and abuse of power, and the implementation of universal suffrage. So... I really think these Hong Kong protests are on the cusp of being revolutionary versus being reactionary. I think there is literally only those two ways for this to go and I think there is every chance they can be revolutionary, it can be a revolutionary movement. But like Egypt, it requires organisation and definitely leadership of the workers and the working class. That is hopefully an interview, a conversation we're going to have with some comrades in the coming weeks in Hong Kong. But I think that this small L liberal identity politics, politic that has taken over the world has a real potential of taking hold in Hong Kong. But there is a genuine tension um, that I that, you know, we need to support the revolutionary elements of.
0: I would disagree. Um, does I it? No, bet you would. No, I bet the you would, I, I found it interesting that comment because uh, you can characterise the Hong Kong protests in many different ways, but I don't think there were ever identity politics. I know it's very big in other countries and all that, but um, it's very interesting. No, know I
1: do. I think the identity of Hong Kong versus and in opposition to China. I definitely think that's one piece of it. Oh, one, in could, the same- one, could, one could go back to...
0: Um, other ideologians say it was, it was part of a national liberation. Okay,
1: all right. I will stand corrected. Th- that is fair. I will stand corrected on that.
0: And one more thing that I just read uh, today very briefly, I don't, and I don't quite know the company, but it seemed there was um, some high-up authorities has actually intimated that all airline workers who will participate will be suspended. So I don't know which airline, but anyway... That yes, there will be very interesting discussion to have when um, we can have uh, um, a talent to talk about <laughs> when we can find some talent. That's right. That's right. There's a lot of talent out there, but I have to also say we do have a little bit of time. The um, I'm uh, amazed at the pictures that come out of of how um, the demonstrators actually addressed and how they use like they've got gas masks they've got all kind of equipment umbrellas and all that all stuff that and laser um lights and all that which here in highly democratic australia would all be banned and is actually illegal
1: i think it's yeah okay sure i agree yes
0: Anyway, we'll go. Um, we're going to New Zealand now. Just something totally different. On the last day of July, hundreds of retail workers broke through security and stormed at busy Auckland mall, demanding better pay and conditions. The current minimum wage is uh, New Zealand seventeen dollars seventy cents, which is about eleven and a half US dollars. Which, for the great majority of workers, it is not enough to live on. In addition, many retail workers do not work full time, exacerbating their income problem. The current campaign is calling for workers to be paid a living wage, which has been calculated to be uh, just over $21, so about $3.5 more, which would make it about $13.5 US dollars an hour. The living wage is calculated to cover the family's basic costs like food, transport, housing and childcare. Now, the campaign has already been successful in getting some big employers like Bunnings and Kmart to agree to paying their workers' living wages, but others like Countdown and Cotonon, are still refusing. So there you go, Um, uh, Giselle. It's not quite about precarious work, but this is about living wage and they have been winning to some extent.
1: We're moving to Australia now and the ongoing impacts of the deadly asbestos. This week, Matthew Werfel, a 42-year-old man from South Australia, was awarded a record $3 million payout ...after he was exposed to asbestos dust, including during renovations on his home. Matthew has terminal cancer due to the asbestos dust. In addition to awarding compensation for pain and suffering, future economic loss, medical expenses and loss of life expectancy, Judge Farrell imposed exemplary damages on the company as a deterrent to other firms. James Hardy, now known as Amaca, and registered in Ireland, was the dominant manufacturer of asbestos products in Australia. In addition to the workers who mined asbestos, the workers who manufactured asbestos products, Australia is now seeing a third wave of asbestos-related illness and deaths in the construction sector as people renovate old homes and buildings and get exposed to the dust.
0: Yes, that's uh, terrible. And the worst part of that news is, that, is I heard that Amaka is going to appeal against the judgment.
1: Well, that's the yeah. yes. no comment. No
0: comment, that's right. So we go to um, Japan, um, Japan, where the two biggest trade union federations in Japan, Rango and Zerokyo, have both recently issued statements against Prime Minister Abe's government increasingly hostile attitude towards South Korea. Since the start of last month, uh, when in Japan introduced new regulations for South Korean products, the two countries have descended into a tit-for-tat trade war. This dispute was started um, 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 by, the Japanese gov- by the Japanese government in order to put pressure on the South Korean government over a continuing dispute over forced wartime labour when Japan ruled Korea as a colony up to 1945. The spark was that the Japanese government was upset that South Korea has allowed former wartime workers to sue for damages against both the corporations involved and the Japanese government. The Japanese government claims that all outstanding issues had been resolved in 1965 when it paid the South Korean government $500 million in compensation. And, of course, I think in those times, in 65, South Korea was in a military dictatorship. So you wonder ever happened to that money. So I think that's... Um, a bit of a a bit of an issue to watch between uh, South Korea and Japan
1: moving now to China this week the Ministry of Emergency Management has issued a statistical analysis of major accidents in China that pinpointed August as being the most dangerous month of the year for workers the statement indicated that high temperatures and humidity heavy rain typhoons and floods all have an impact on work safety increasing the risk of accidents such as fires, explosions, dam breaks and collapses in the transport, mining, chemical and construction industries. While August may appear the most dangerous month, the reality in China is that accidents at work are a daily reality for many workers. Labor activists believe that this warning was part of the lead-up to the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic on the 1st of October, which will highlight all of the Communist Party's achievements over the last seven decades. Excuse me.
0: We wait to see the the very long list. um,
1: Of achievements.
0: That's correct. And we're just on uh, 14 past nine o'clock here on your favourite community radio show, Asia Pacific Currents, on your favourite community radio station, 3CR Radio, with your uh, favourite panellists, Giselle and Pierre. So that's enough favourites, I think, for the time being. We'll go to a couple of community announcements and then we'll be back with the interview about Giselle and her time in Malaysia. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since
1: 1976. 3TR Community Radio, 855 AM.
0: It's just about 15 past nine o'clock here on Asia Pacific Current on 3CR Radio. And as uh, announced beforehand and as people knew by the absence of Giselle a few weeks ago, Giselle um, went to Malaysia for a trade union uh, trip to meet lots of comrades and to do a lot of hard work there. So I could ask you lots of questions, but I want to ask you, um, we'll start with, um, with a, uh, possibly a slightly positive um, um, news item, and then, and then we'll go to the bigger picture. That um, you've you've come back with um, some news about the hospital cleaners in yeah. Malaysia, mm-hmm. and how they've um, really um, changed the 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 union and revitalised, and are really sounded like they're on the offensive. Do you want to give us a bit of background?
1: Yeah. So this is only understand. I know you wanted to give this a positive spin, and I'm. Uh, you know, the bearer of doom and gloom. I I know I'm the young, sprightly person on the show, but... I also like to dwell on that. No, I'm kidding. Um, it is, but, but it, There's going to be more questions <laughs> on that, so
0: don't, don't, don't fret.
1: It is the case, though, that to understand why this is so significant, listeners do need to understand Malaysia's history. So in um, the 40s, 50s and 60s, um, there was a campaign uh, to smash the Communist Party of Malaysia to prevent you know, basically its opposition to occupation and so on. Um, the The relationship between the Communist Party and the trade union movement was by, because the Communist Party was banned, um, the communists used the trade unions to basically amass arms to undertake basically a, a civil war. And in order to prevent that to break the Communist Party, they had to break the union movement um, For people that are communists, their relationship between a, the Communist Party and the organized masses of the workers is obvious. But for those who don 't believe in the, um, who are part of the workers movement but don 't believe in communism, that might not be as clear. Um, so the communi- so the um, ISA, the Internal Security Act, was introduced in the 50s and 60s, designed to lock up and crush the workers' movement, and it succeeded. This is the part that we have to look at. The smashing of the unions in Malaysia was very, very effective. The reason that it's a little bit doom and gloom is because uh, what we need to deal with and confront in Australia – is that what we're facing is the smashing of our unions. And if that is successful, you are literally looking at 50 to 60 years of rebuilding. So that is what happened. So um, in the early 2000s or the mid to, well, yeah, the early 2000s, where we are right the now, noughties. actually, um, uh, there the, a civil movement uh, erupted, which we call Bersaed, so the Clean and Fair Elections, which... Uh, 19 years or, or 12 years mm. after they started, then we saw the finally the defeat of Umno, however you want to call it, because Mahatia was elected mm. under the opposition party. Um, but in that, so in that context, um, the hospital workers have started to reorganize. So here is what happened now. This is your That's, question. Uh, there was
0: a very long build up, to it, it was
1: necessary. Um, So uh, part of neoliberalism was to privatise all of the cleaning services in the state, in the um, public service, so hospitals and schools. So we're talking some 500,000 workers across the country are organised as cleaners in these industries. Um, The government privatised it, which meant they introduced contractors and subcontractors, and subsequently...
0: Sounds like a very, very uh, common, uh, common story.
1: Yes. Um, and, but what it means is that there are, they open it up to tender every three years. And every three years, there's a new contractor that wins, which means people don't get any continuity. They don't get any, um, kind of longevity of service or anything like that. So they, other than their current wages and conditions, the basic level of wages and conditions, they don't get anything else, not long service, not any accrued, none of the accrued um, uh, uh, benefits. Um, And so this union lay dormant for a while. So it was already registered and so on. And some socialists saw the opportunity to organise um, and basically started organising. They went from 90 uh, members to 900 members in the space of two years, which I think for anybody is quite a remarkable um, achievement. But some things that the Malaysian union movement must contend with, which is a long and difficult conversation to have with them, is the issue of union dues. And I think this is also a warning for the movement here in Australia. When I started out as an international activist, some one of our comrades, actually a Malaysian who was based in Thailand at the time, drummed into me, and I learnt this lesson very early on, that workers must pay dues to their unions. It's not a union if the workers aren't paying dues. It's an NGO, it's something else, and automatically the power of that organisation is different. So even if you charge workers 20 cents a month, they need to own the union. Mm. They need to own the organisers. Those organisers must be recallable and the only way you do that is a membership organisation. Do we
0: know how many unions around... the slightly bigger, bigger question about how many unions in the world would not be paying dues. I would have thought that would be the majority that uh, pay membership dues.
1: Actually, Well, workers will pay membership dues, but there is also that tendency that happens a lot in Australia where unions apply for grants for certain projects. So Mm. the women's officer won't be from membership dues. With declining union membership... Mm. And the um, intention to maintain activity, and if that activity is campaign kind of work, it's easy to start obscuring those lines. So I think unions are starting to look for alternative income streams in the face of declining membership, rather than dealing with the declining membership.
0: All right, we'll go. We'll leave that to one side. We'll go back to the cleaners.
1: So um, I had the. It, I don't. You. I, I don't. I often don't like the language of. Oh, it was such a privilege to blah blah blah. But there were some rooms and some meetings that I had the opportunity to sit in where I knew I. I didn't belong in that room,
0: mm. and it
1: really was a privilege to have the opportunity to sit in that room. And one of them was a EBA negotiation, um, not with the bosses but with the organisers, um, informing the workers of where the negotiations were at. And it was – so all, so a bunch of cleaners in one particular hospital in one particular area were called to a meeting and the organisers reported on where negotiations were at. And they made copies of this um, EBA in the different – so um, there are three main languages in Malaysia, Tamil, um, Chinese and Malay. And so the EBA was drafted in all of those languages, hardly any Chinese cleaners, mostly them, um, Tamil and Malay, um, but they did it in the three languages and an English copy for us because they knew that we were going to be there. And they went through line by line and explained what the bosses are saying, um, what the union is recommending, and asked the workers what they thought and what they wanted. And at this point in time, the organisers felt strategically that they couldn't get a wage increase up. And so we watched the workers yell at their organisers and tell them what for. And the organisers sat there and patiently dealt with their issues and said, we understand and we want to fight this. We don't think we can achieve it. And I actually saw a real debate that I don't really see in Australia anymore with EBA negotiations. And eventually the workers agreed And created a plan for when they would go for a wage claim. I thought it was remarkable. Um, So, just go back to a step. Did you get a a
0: sense um, why, in this particular union at this time, they've been able to, um, you know, go from ninety to nine hundred members in two years? Like, what was their winning strategy? Or winning tactics.
1: I think this issue of rolling three-year contracts with the um, the contractor subcontractor and people. So people have been working for this company for in those jobs for twenty to forty years, mm. and they're on the same wage. So I think the exhaustion of that. I think the ever increasing cost of living and and the reality that their wages are going down against the cost of living. Um, has prompted like people's wanting to engage and fight collectively. And so I think that space opened up and the socialists took up that space and started organising. So there's that. But also... Um, issues of uh, maternity leave and things like the reality of people's lives um, that these three-year rolling contracts never allow them to do. I think that was part, I think that the economic um, situation, the dormant union gave the right conditions for an organised group to get in and I think we're lucky that they were left-wing socialists Mm. that that did that.
0: So you're talking about the hospital cleaners, Malaysia's got I can't remember how and many schools, people. And schools, school cleaners oh, and also. and schools. Yes. So have you got any idea of how many cleaners, like what does 900 represent in terms of the possible workforce?
1: Very small because the possible workforce is 500,000 across the country. So we are being asked to help them um, in terms of uh, financial support and that conversation that I said, uh, talked about earlier, the need to build through membership Jews, through Union Jews, we've had that conversation. Um, We think we've won that conversation. So they need to start charging Jews and they need to talk to the members about why that's important. So they're – Joining people up needs to include a money conversation. It's easy to get people to join up if they don't have to give anything.
0: And again, given that there's 500,000 possible workers, there were 90 members before, so very small. They've uh, really upped it to 900, but still very small. Are they in competition with other unions or the whole sector is totally disorganised?
1: They're not in competition because the union structure doesn't work that way in Malaysia. Once you've registered a union in the area, that's it. Um, So one union, one workplace.
0: Even though there's hospitals and schools, it's all seen as...
1: Well, it's all the public service. So if they start privatising hospitals directly, we might have a different situation. Or if... um, a, a different kind of attack comes down that separates every hospital as a different workplace, then we might have that issue, but not at this point. The biggest attack comes from the government and the bosses wanting to smash the union and smash organising.
0: Now, when we were talking about the, um, uh, in the news section, we talked about, you made a comment about uh, precarious work and how people complain, and obviously these are all precarious in short-term contracts. Um, did you get a sense that they've got, Uh, ideas or know what to do or demands around this this issue, which obviously is a huge issue for them.
1: So what they've decided to do, which we've seen before, this was the big POSCO dispute in South Korea that resulted in a worker being shot on the street in the back, um, was that they they have decided, and we think this is why this is going to work, um, to make the EBA with the head contractor, which is the government. So actually go directly to the lead contract uh, that binds all of the subsequent contracts under it, irrespective of who's holding that um, subcontract for whatever period, so that the term, the life of the EBA, is the life of the conditions.
0: And um, have they been able to do that or negotiation or is just there? That is
1: what they're in the middle of and what that meeting was that I sat in on. So that is part of that um, scope of demands.
0: All right. That'll be um, fascinating to um, report back, um, Giselle. Hopefully you can keep an eye on it and uh, next few weeks and months and say, remember that um, they've won or you know, back to the drawing board and all that. Absolutely. It's just, we really come to the end of the... of the. Uh... Yeah, we
1: spent our whole time talking about the Malaysians. I mean, I'll just quickly say we did a lot of other things. We met with the Orang Usli, which are the Aboriginal people. We went out to their communities and talked about the some of the um, main issues and fights facing them. We also met with the um, Thai Solidarity Campaign. It's almost impossible to organise directly in Thailand. A lot of the exiles are based in Malaysia. So we did some work on the um, anti-dictatorship laws and that campaign. So we did some of that work. Um, and, of course, we the whole purpose of the visit was to train them in setting up a worker's solidarity and to do some work around Global pickup. Yeah. And line. also
0: you, you talked about migrant workers as yes, well. So absolutely. there were a lot of other, but we knew that. But uh, <laughs> you know, it just happened that we just concentrated on one one bit. Maybe we'll just have to have you back onto this show. Giselle. Let's. let's.
1: <laughs> or, listeners, you can um, get in touch with us and and start participating in AAWL's campaigns and activities. That's
0: right. That's even better. But that's the end of the program for today for Asia-Pacific Currents, uh, brought to you every week by Australia-Asia Worker Links. Um, you'll be uh, listening to Palestine Remembrance right after these announcements, but that's all from me, Pierre. And me, Giselle.
1: Hi, Hi we, we are, are the Lumbergels. Hello, Hello i And we're, we're from, from Canada. Canada. So you're listening to 3CR 855 AM Community Radio and we just want to say support your local radio station. Way, hey, and away we go. Donkey riding, donkey riding. Way, hey, and away we go. Riding on a donkey. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.